0: Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, August 11th, we're studying Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 18 through chapter 6 verse 12. In today's text, Solomon speaks about the joy that God does give to his people in their toil, even as Solomon also laments yet again another aspect of the vanity he sees in this life under the sun. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Rick Mars. Dr. Mars serves as Senior Professor of Practical Theology and Pastoral Counseling at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Mars, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Very good to be with you, Pastor Apple. Thank you very much. So, Dr. Mars, talk to us a little bit about the book of Ecclesiastes. It's one that Christians perhaps don't turn to all that often. It's one that doesn't show up in the lectionary too much. Uh, Talk to us about it. Why is this an important book for us as Christians? Yeah, and I think it's actually even more important
1: now in our generation than it maybe has been in previous generations. But uh, there's a couple of books here by Solomon. I think Christians tend not to read uh, both Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon uh, for various reasons. And one, Ecclesiastes is a little on the dark side. And, you know, what is he trying to get at? And why is life so meaningless? And we have a hard time even wondering why... Why such a book would be in the Bible, but uh, and the Song of Solomon. I actually teach a, a couple of different uh, sexual ethics courses here at the seminary, and when I teach those, I have students read through the Song of Solomon every week that they take the class, so that they kind of oh, and they they start to realize oh, this does have some interesting applications. Uh, I don't teach any classes where I require people to read Ecclesiastes over and over again, but maybe I should. Uh, <laughs> I think I think it is well it's while it's pessimistic about life in the big picture, I think in the in the long run, it turns out to be uh, more at least at least preparing us for the gospel in this particular time and age, um, and preparing us for Christ's resurrection will will at least my plan is to end up talking about Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15 toward the end of our hour, and how I think those two chapters of the New Testament are actually speaking back to Ecclesiastes and Solomon, and what Solomon couldn't couldn't foresee because he was a thousand years before Jesus. Uh, he was an ancestor of Jesus, but still a thousand years before. And and actually, I came across an interesting quote in uh, <clears throat> the. Uh, uh, Concordia commentary about Ecclesiastes by uh, James Bullhagen and what he thought, or what he found that Luther thought. Martin Luther himself had his doubts and struggles with Ecclesiastes, at least at first, but as time went by, his appreciation of the book only seemed to grow to the point that he spoke and wrote extensively about it. Uh, Luther discovered that Ecclesiastes is, if you will, a very Lutheran book. And this is because Ecclesiastes espouses a simple life of childlike faith while honestly facing the quandaries of existence in this fallen world. The child of God cannot enjo- can enjoy, not overanalyze or shun, can enjoy life's little pleasures as gifts of a gracious God. And at the same time, he can roll with the punches, looking realistically at the problems and hardships of earthly life and laughing in their faces. Unlike fair-weather religion, which rejoices in good times and crumbles in bad, faith inspired by Ecclesiastes is resilient. I just thought that was an interesting way. I've, I've never met uh, Dr. Bullhagen, but I just thought that was a really good quote uh, by him that kind of put that into perspective for me in, in reading Ecclesiastes, and I hope for, for your listeners as well. So,
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate his insight into some of the things that Luther writes. I've been reading a little bit of Luther's works on Ecclesiastes going through this study as I've been able to, and one thing that he does... Luther keeps coming back to is the thought that Ecclesiastes teaches us to receive the gifts of God that are given right now instead of looking forward to the future and worrying about what we will have then or what we won't have then. And that that aspect of the childlike faith I definitely see coming through in Luther's comments and I think is is very helpful from the book of Ecclesiastes. You, you mentioned at the beginning that you think Ecclesiastes is a book that's maybe more important in this generation than for previous generations. And I'm, I'm curious what you see in this generation that you think the book of Ecclesiastes speaks very well to.
1: Well, there's a, there's a large emphasis in our generation in the last couple of generations with existentialism. You just the philosophical sort of question, what is the meaning of, of life in this world? And I think it's being asked, not just by philosophers now, but it's being asked by the general public and I tell people, to be honest, if I weren't a Christian, I would probably be an existentialist, even though I find their writings and stuff kind of mind-boggling at times. But, uh, but because I am a Christian, because I do believe that Christ is resurrected from the dead, that changes all of these questions and answers to what is the meaning of life. Um, ironically, it was a Lutheran, Soren Kierkegaard, in the 1800s, who was considered the, the grandfather, uh, the father of existentialism and all existentialists that have come after him uh, kind of harken back to him and see him as their beginning. But, but Kierkegaard was an avid Lutheran. He, he read Luther's sermons and, and uh, realized that Luther understood this sigh, the struggle that we have in this lifetime, but that how the gospel then speaks directly to that struggle And again, a lot of people now, especially if they're not Christian, uh, just are looking for a meaning, some meaning to life. And without Christ, there really isn't a possibility of meaning. I've as a counselor, I've heard of too many uh, sad stories where people have taken their own lives just because they thought there was no meaning in this life. And even one that a friend of mine told that the person even said, I'm not really all that depressed, I just have decided there's no meaning in this life, so I'm gonna take my own life. And it's really, really sad when people don't see themselves as creatures of a loving God who has redeemed them through Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord, and that through him, uh, well, again, we'll, we'll get to 1 Corinthians 15 a little bit later on, and I want to kind of close with the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, which I think, and, and the last verses of Romans 8, which I think do address these issues. Yeah, I, uh, Solomon was right. I mean, life is vain ever since the the Genesis 3 curse, where, you know, we fell into sin and death is coming. Um in fact, I even like to say John Kleinig, Dr. John Kleinig, uh, a noted uh, Australian Lutheran scholar, uh, presented here several years ago, a good friend, I really appreciate uh, John. But he makes the argument that the word um, that gets translated breath, Habel, I think, um, or gets translated vanity, or some, in the NIV, it gets translated meaningless, uh, life is meaningless. He actually says, well, it's the original Greek word for or Hebrew word for uh, uh, breath. And he thinks that Solomon's just trying to uh, emphasize the fleeting characteristics of this life. And that ever since we've fallen into sin, once we're born, we are actually dying. And this, this time of life that we have, whether it's a few minutes or whether it's 80 or 90 years, is actually very, very short in comparison to eternity. And if we see our life as a short breath, we will live that out differently as creatures of God, as redeemed creatures of God, than if we think, oh, well, I'm just uh, a product of random evolutionary processes that, you know, came about in this world and all this matter, all these atoms are just bumping into each other and it's completely random what, what has happened. And so therefore, if everything is random, there's really no meaning to this world unless I personally give it some meaning. And people who think about these things long enough and deeply enough realize, oh, if I'm giving myself personal meaning, that's just another random um, existentialist sort of thought too, what does that have anything to do? It's only when we realize that, hey, this world is not just vanity. It is, well, um, created by Jesus Christ for him and redeemed by him through his cross and his resurrection. So,
0: yeah, Yeah, I mean, this is something that's come up in several conversations so far in the book of Ecclesiastes, that Solomon helps us to realize that when we try to make ourselves something other than the creatures of God, those whom mm-hmm. he has made and redeemed, that's where we'll run into this vanity. If if we think we're in control that we can do things that that we're going to accomplish all these things, that's vanity. It's yeah. it's when we have the true fear of God, that's the term that he uses several times in the book. That's when finding our right place in this created order as those who have been made by God and redeemed by God, then we can actually begin to enjoy the things that God has given here and now. But apart from that, it is it's just this this hebel, this this breath yeah and, and yeah any more yeah. thoughts before we jump into the text
1: uh yeah it does hearken back to what uh, solomon wrote in proverbs proverbs nine ten. the fear of fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom yeah and uh that was actually the the theme of one of the colleges that i attended saint john's college in winfield kansas uh that was its theme and it's always kind of stuck with me since i was 18 years old and, and thinking about that verse but it kind of comes through all of Ecclesiastes as well, and especially some of the later uh, chapters that you're going to get to with some, some other people, so. All
0: right, well, let's go ahead and turn to our text for today. We're in Ecclesiastes 5, beginning at verse 18. Solomon writes, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known that what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? That's our text for today. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18 through chapter 6, verse 12. Dr. Mars, the end of chapter 5, which we start with today, are words that sound very similar to something Solomon said previously toward the end of chapter 2 about the fact that there is enjoyment in this life uh, rightly received. So, help us to to see what sounds like a a hopeful note within this sometimes depressing book.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is. He does go back and forth and has, in fact, John Kleining, when I heard him speak on these issues, talked about the joy in Ecclesiastes uh, we, we sometimes forget that as, as yeah. Lutheran Christians, that there are many places in Scripture where it says that we can enjoy the good things of this world, uh, and we tend to, to be a little Germanic and, and uh, <laughs> overly focused on the, the, the sadness of the, the mundane things of this world. But God has given us so much I mean, it is kind of hearkening back to the Genesis 3 curse where, you know, the Lord had told Adam and Eve, if you eat this fruit to dying, you will die. And then once they ate of it, he said, well, now that you're going to be struggling with these curses, you know, be all these thorns and thistles and you'll toil under the sun um, to, to eat your food. But it still says, but you will have food. There will be joy in in receiving these gifts from God. It's just that they're going to Come a little harder than just going and picking fruit off of a tree all the time with with ease. So uh, uh, I think we need to think about these things. We American Christians, especially, we in the United States, have been given so much. I remember reading a research article ten or twelve years ago that said that the 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 all persons who are born in the United States automatically receive like $450,000 worth of infrastructure just built around them. All all the good things, all the roads, all the bridges, all the, the benefits that we have in this culture. Uh, other countries, especially some in Africa, mainly have $20,000 in infrastructure for each one of their uh, individual um, people. Uh, But we in the United States have so much to be thankful for, but yet we tend not to be. We kind of complain that we don't have more. And I still remember years ago when I was driving down a road outside the uh, town of where my parish was in Junction City, Kansas, before coming to the seminary, and there was this big sign that was advertising, I think, four-wheelers or something, and it, it just said something like, your neighbor has one of these you want one too. And uh, advertising just pushes us to covet and covet more and more things that we don't have, but we think that our neighbor has. And it would be fun if our if we had all the things that are, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins kind of adage. And that's just a, a stupid <laughs> uh, existential adage, actually, when you when you think about it. So But, yeah, we are given so much, and we can and should enjoy what God has blessed us with. Um, Going back to the first article of the Creed and what Luther says in the the small catechism or the fourth petition of the the Lord's Prayer, that we receive all these blessings of house, home, family, uh, good government, good weather, uh, all of those things are things that we can and should you know i say that it's supposed to be 100 degrees here today when we're recording and uh, <laughs> but it's still july in st louis so that's, right. that's what what we kind of expect july in st louis to be so <laughs> that's
0: right this is this is his lot is to, yes. is to have <laughs> yeah. hot days during the summer but yeah. then but then to receive those things with with thanksgiving and i think that's where especially in the Luther's explanation to the fourth petition you know God gives daily bread to everyone even without our prayers yeah but we pray it so that we would receive it with thanksgiving or or in the the explanation of the first article that you also brought up you know for all this it is my duty to thank that's the first thing he lists thank mm-hmm. and praise serve and obey him apart from that receiving it with thanksgiving apart from the the thanking and praising then it is vanity but when that thanksgiving is in place then we can receive these things as gifts with joy rather than just, yeah, it's all meaningless. If there's no faith, yeah, that's that's what it is. But with that faith, then these do, even, even those matters of, of toil that seem monotonous, those actually become opportunities for joy. Uh, and that's what I've heard Pastor Brian Wolffield, he, he puts it, that joy is the serious business of the Christian. You know, we, we yeah. think that if we're going to be serious, we can't be joyful. And he, he says, no way. You know, joy is the serious business of the Christian, and to be joyful is, is certainly a, a wonderful thing that God has given. Yeah.
1: Oh, and even in our liturgy, we, there's that one phrase um, live our lives with repentant joy. Yeah. And we, we kind of we emphasize the repentance, and rightfully so, that our days, our, our lives are days of, of daily repentance. But uh, it is repentant joy to know that, wow. God's son loved me so much that he gave his life for me, uh, and for all of us in the church, that is a thing to be completely joyful about, and we kind of take it for granted. So
0: that's right, yeah, yeah. So Solomon here is helping us to receive these things, even when it, and I I like the way that he's, you know, this is his lot, or this is his portion in verse 18, but then that is turned in verse 19 to the gift of God. So you're like, oh, this is kind of where I'm stuck, actually becomes a gift of God, right? I am in this station in life as God's gift. And I think if you would talk a little bit about verse 20, because that's something, a little new twist I think Solomon gives us here that he he didn't have back in chapter 2. Solomon says he will not remember much, or he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Is that Solomon kind of looking at both the joy and sorrow in this life and, and seeing the the joy tipping the scales? Is that what, what he's going on there?
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, it is an interesting sort of phrase. He will not much remember. I mean, we um, there's one psychiatrist, psychologist uh, that I've been following in the last several years, Kurt Thompson, who uh, looks at at counseling and, and life kind of in general from an interpersonal neurobiological approach where our, our brains are looking to interact with other brains. Our neurons in our brains are looking to interact with other neurons in our brains because we were not made to be alone. Uh, that's why God created Eve. And so it's an interesting uh, Christian twist on interpersonal neurobiology. But he talks a lot about how we can get overly focused and, and people who have had difficult traumatic childhoods can get so focused on remembering the bad things that it it's hard for them to see the good things that are happening in their life uh in their with their current marriage being different than their parents marriage or something like that so but if we do stay occupied with the joyful things not not in a uh, say simplistic uh way uh not um not focusing on 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 things that aren't really real, but to focus on the stuff that God has given us in this life and then remember those things and pay attention to those things and we won't then be as focused on remembering the the bad things that have happened to us mm-hmm. in the past. Again, it's important to remember the bad things. Sure. They can awfully be traumatizing and, and be... Um, forgotten, active forgetting, uh, a lot of people can do of the traumas that happened to them during their uh, earlier childhood, but it doesn't mean that God isn't blessing us now in this time, um, especially in the church.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, What strikes me about about this verse, uh, you've mentioned Romans 8, and I know we're going to go there in a bit. Romans 8 has been in the lectionary recently, Mm -hmm. at least as we're recording this, so I've been reflecting on some of those texts, and there, in a couple of places, Paul encourages Christians to take comfort because the glory that is to come outweighs the present suffering. Yeah. So he he points them forward to the to the glory that is to come, which is is certainly good. But here it seems Solomon is saying, well, also remember the blessings that God is putting right in front of your face, yeah. and those too will outweigh the the suffering. Without without denying that the sufferings are real. Right. But but also, you know, again, making sure we also see the blessings that God is giving.
1: Yeah, yeah. In Romans 8, he talks about we are heirs with Christ, which, again, Solomon wouldn't have fully realized that. Solomon, again, you and I both agree that Solomon probably, we've, we've read other people that have said Solomon's probably writing this toward the end of his life. Yeah. Uh, the Song of Solomon maybe came at the beginning of his of his uh, kingship and uh, Proverbs came maybe more in the middle. That's at least an ancient Jewish tradition. And then uh, Ecclesiastes starts coming at the end where he's looking going, oh, my son Rehoboam is going to take over. Uh, I'm not so confident in him. Uh, this is all going to, I'm afraid it's going to fall. And again, Solomon had to some degree fallen away from the faith of Yahweh. He had taken up the faiths, or at least made arrangements so that some of his thousand wives, uh, whatever, 700 wives and 300 concubine, uh, he at least wanted them to be able to worship their own gods if they came from some other country and were daughters of kings in some other country. So he was allowing uh, non-Yahweh worship, uh, syncretism to go on in his land. And I just would think that in his wisdom he would start to go, this isn't a good idea. I shouldn't have fallen prey to this. I'm, I'm erring in the the wisdom that the Lord has given me, um, but and that's what keeps coming. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, in Romans eight, then you know, the groaning of this creation is going to continue. Genesis three curse came on, uh, the thorns and thistles of this life, and I can I, uh, I remember uh, years ago my wife and I did a uh, uh, archaeological dig in Israel during July and I saw thistle thorns that I'd never seen the size of those sorts of thorns before they're like two inches long in some places we just go through your gloves if you uh, accidentally grabbed hold of them and it was hot um, you know it's closer to the equator there and uh, we could only do the archaeological work from like 4 30 in the morning until noon because being out in the toil of the Sun the afternoon Sun was just too much. Um, I can't imagine being even closer to the equator, where the sun is even more directly overhead, and how how people actually even survive. But uh, the groaning of this creation has the spirit groaning for us in ways that words cannot even express, and that yeah, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Which again, I'm getting ahead of myself with uh, right. with Romans eight here. So, well,
0: that's okay. That's okay. I just I hit. I, I think there's some there's some applicability here already, but yeah, we're going to keep coming to that thought, the hope that Paul has for us in Romans 8 and elsewhere, as we continue to consider Solomon's words. We're going to do that more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Dr. Rick Mars this morning about Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right! LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, You can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, August 11th. We're studying Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 18 through chapter 6 verse 12 with Rev. Dr. Rick Mars. He is Senior Professor of Practical Theology and Pastoral Counseling at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Mars, prior to the break, we were looking at the end of chapter 5 where Solomon speaks about the joy that God does give to us as we receive his gifts in thanksgiving in this life. As chapter 6 begins, then Solomon goes back to some of that more familiar territory from the book of Ecclesiastes, where he observes life under the sun, he sees evil, he sees vanity, and the, the evil, the vanity that he identifies at the beginning of the chapter, I think, picks up on something he did mention at the end of chapter 5. Solomon talks about this man to whom God has given wealth and possessions and honor. He doesn't lack anything he wants, but God does not give him power to enjoy these things. A stranger enjoys them instead. What, what is the situation Solomon's talking about here?
1: Well, yeah, if we do assume that this is toward the end of Solomon's life, I mean, he's been given more power and more possessions and more honor than any other Israelite in the entire history of Israel, mm-hmm. uh, save Jesus Christ then later on. But uh, yeah, well, Jesus was never given any wealth or possessions or anything, Um, but God has given him wisdom, and he has led this country for decades um, in in that wisdom that God has given him and and gave him wealth and possessions. So it seems like he might be talking somewhat autobiographically here uh, about himself, but he's also been seeing other people that have been given wealth and possessions and and probably realizing that, hey, you know, those of us that have received all these things should probably be more thankful than people that haven't received them. But I think covetousness, ninth and 10th commandments, issues start to to bleed in, and people who have a lot want more and more. Uh, People that don't have a lot want more also, but uh, uh, a lot of people think, oh, if I just add this, then I'd be happy well, whatever this is has become an idol uh, to us. We we fear love and trust in that thing, whether it's wealth, possessions, more than we do that the God who has given it to us, given them to us. And uh, yeah, uh, Solomon has come to to the fuller realization that this is vanity. This is a breath. This is just something that's passing and so he's gotten to be maybe my age or something at this point. I'm about to turn 65, uh, and Solomon's kind of looking around going, wow, all of these past 40 years of all this work and, and such, I thought I would feel differently about it at the end. But it just seems like vanity because I'm going to die, and my son's going to take over, and his son, and I, it could just all fall apart, which in reality it did for Solomon. Uh, Rehoboam didn't didn't rule over the twelve tribes. He only re- ruled over two, and uh, Jeroboam took the took the northern kingdom in a, in a different uh, idol-worshipping direction, and Israel was never the same after that. So, mm-hmm. I just wonder if if Solomon is seeing that these things are going to happen, and, yeah. and he says. If a man fathers 100 children, well, yeah, he probably had fathered more than Uh, that with that many hundreds of wives and concubines that that he had had. Um, He had had hundreds of those children, but it still wasn't going to make a major difference because he saw the vanity of all of their lives as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I just had this thought yesterday too. I'm kind of skipping on down a couple other verses. Um, It says... So that the days of of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It just occurred to me yesterday in preparing for this. Solomon's older brother was very nearly a stillborn child. I mean, he was in essence a stillborn child. He was a child that was born weak and dying and then died I don't know, a day or two or three after after his birth. Uh, that child of of David and Bathsheba uh, would have perhaps been the king of Israel other than Solomon if God had permitted him to live. And now Solomon realizes, oh, my older brother may have had life better than I did because he just went to be with God. Uh, and I do think that this is at least a verse we can help people turn to if they, if they do <coughs> lose a... A baby in, in childbirth or a miscarriage or something like that. That this is one that well, it's not an absolute promise. At least, is one that's suggesting that stillborn children are uh, having a better life with God uh, than they would even if they had lived here on earth. So,
0: hmm. talk talk more about the way that Solomon makes that turn because I think that often surprises us shocks us even Solomon spoke back in chapter 4 as well about one who would be better off as as dead that the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive that was the way he put it in 4 verse 2 here he says a stillborn child is better off than this one who has no power to enjoy God's gifts and that that seems rather shocking to us as Christians what do we what do we make of that
1: yeah, well, again, I think it goes to the fact that he's not seeing Jesus yet. He, he He's living in a time where the promise of the Messiah coming is still a mystery. And at some level, maybe Solomon thought he was the Messiah or at least in an earthly Messiah way because all these things had had been built up in Israel. Their Their borders were farther out than they ever were before and ever would be again. Uh, Israel was a strong and powerful country, uh, tantamount to to the countries to its east and west and Egypt and Assyria and so forth in in power. Uh, But he realizes that this is just vanity and it's all going to go away because no nations last forever. Um, You know, we in the United States sometimes think our nation is going to last forever, but it it won't. Uh, it will end, too, if Jesus returns or some other time uh, later on. And so uh, we trust in these nations and the nation building that's going on. But in reality, it's all just a breath. It's just going away. And well, again, that maybe helps us transition into First into Corinthians 15, where Paul actually, I think Paul is in some sense answering Solomon from Ecclesiastes with that chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks so much about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the the first Adam brought death, the new Adam, Christ has brought eternal life. But there's several places, I counted four yesterday, there might be more, where he uses that word vanity or futility in some similar ways, uh, if Christ is not raised, our faith is futile and we're still in our sins and as we're still going to die. We are most to be pitied. But uh, uh, at the very end of that chapter, he says, and this is kind of a theme verse for me uh, for the last few years, and especially during COVID time, uh, therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I just hear those, those uh, uh, reverberations, those echoes of Genesis 3 where our labor will be difficult and in Ecclesiastes, our label will be in vain. But Paul's actually saying, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord Jesus, knowing that our labor is not in vain, that seems to be just answering these vanity questions that Solomon couldn't answer. Um, People who have seen me driving around in my car for the last uh, 35, 40 years, I've had some variation of a a license plate of H-E-Z-R-Z-N. He's risen. Nice. Uh, yeah, I've had yeah. three different versions depending on the state that I live in, but and what they've allowed me to have. So my current one's H E S R Z N. But uh, uh, when I was a parish pastor, I would always try to drive my vehicle, my minivan at that time, up as close to the uh, gravesite as possible after the funeral, and we'd gone out to the gravesite because I wanted to close the graveside portion of the service by pointing to my license plate and just saying Christ is risen and having the entire small congregation that was around that that tent and that graveside to oh, Christ is risen he is risen indeed hallelujah when we when we're suffering through the death of a loved one and it makes us see our own death is coming sometime in the future it's hard to to feel joyful, it's hard to feel happy and, 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 and we shouldn't. I mean, yes, there is a certain joy. Uh, when, my, when my father died 12 years ago now, uh, the first things out of my mother's mouth was, well, it's a good day for Dick, uh, for my dad. And uh, it, it is, it was. And uh, uh, I still remember that and think, yeah, we need to stay focused on the fact that our loved ones have gone to paradise to be with Jesus, but it's still not the end. Because we don't believe that dying and going to paradise is the end of the whole story. Jesus is going to return and take all of us, well, create a new heaven and a new earth and give us new bodies that have as many or more abilities than what Adam and Eve did before the fall. And life is not going to be vanity. Life is not going to be a breath. Life is going to be eternal at that time. And we have that to... look forward to it's it's a mystery to us yet about what will we do when we are living in this new heaven and new earth well we're going to spend time just talking to all of our friends and family and all the other believers who can look back on their life and go wow i see now how the lord used this person and this person maybe a person that was born a thousand or three thousand years before us that their labor in the lord was not in vain because they did little things that led the next generation to believe in Yahweh, Jesus, and then the next generation and the next generation, and that those all came about to finally bring the Holy Spirit, brought me to believe in Jesus and to live with him eternally as well. So, uh, uh, yeah, there can be the days where we think, uh, uh, this is all just vanity. Why am I doing all this? Why... Well, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So,
0: mm. Yeah, I mean, talk a little bit about what this, you know, Solomon talking about death being better. You mentioned from the outset you know, cases where, where someone takes their own life. Talk a little about the background of Christian counseling that you have, and, and you know, when when we encounter faithful Christians who maybe have thoughts like, like Solomon is, expressing these things to us, how we might respond faithfully as Christians.
1: Yeah, well, I, even in my book, uh, Making Christian Counseling More Christ-Centered, I would spend about six pages actually on on uh, Kierkegaard and Ecclesiastes, and I'm not the expert on this. I actually point people to David Coe. Dr. David Coe, who's a young professor up at Concordia, Nebraska, has, did his entire dissertation on, on uh, uh, Kierkegaard's understanding of Luther's uh, sermons and the sigh that that Luther had within that, we need to be very realistic on the fact that, yeah, we live our lives in tribulation, in suffering. Uh, That's part of what is going on in in this time, in this place, because of not personal sin necessarily in our our lives, but because the creation is groaning, as Paul says in, in Romans 8, and deteriorating. But I actually did put in in my book a little uh, two-page description back and forth of what it might look like between a a counselor or a pastor and a parishioner who felt like life isn't worth living. Say, well, have you read Ecclesiastes? And, And again, very few people have and kind of take them to some specific portions of Ecclesiastes like this that gives voice. I mean, you've already had somebody uh, talk about uh, Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time for everything, a time to be born, a time to die, and and so forth. So uh, there's just all this rich um, description of how, how futile life is without the Lord. But then the New Testament, places like Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15, answer that futility. Uh, with the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Solomon is doing wisdom literature, but we know from the New Testament, from 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, that Jesus is that answer to wisdom. He actually is wisdom personified. And so all of these questions, all of these futile thinkings that that Solomon's bringing up are very real. And we need to well, Galatians 6.2, carry each other's burdens and so fulfill the, the law of Christ, which in the context of Galatians, the law of Christ is love. Uh, we can and should help carry each other's burdens through this life. Going through this and all the suffering alone uh, is very, very difficult. And we, we Americans are perhaps more alone than others because we live in such an individualistic society. We think we should be able to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and by our own uh, set of freedoms, but we need each other. And again, I mentioned Kurt Thompson, he kind of focuses on neurons needing neurons to create a brain and brains needing other brains to uh, expand and and grow. It's not good for man to be alone. That's why God created Eve and why we have the body of Christ, the church. you know, none, none of us is, is whole in ourselves. We're each an individual member. Some of us are the fingers, some of us are the eyes, some of us are the ears. And how can we then uh, reach out to those that are suffering at particular times? And again, yeah. the suicide, as you brought up, tends to be a transient. People tend to be s- suicidal for a short period of time, but not a long time. And if we can help them get through a s- time of suicidal ideation, uh, and get them the help that they need, then they're often thankful. I've had a number of clients who were extremely angry at me when I uh, prevented their suicide. They were extremely angry at me for the first 24 hours, but three days later they were very thankful that I had taken steps to make sure that they could not harm themselves wow. yeah. uh, permanently. So
0: wow. wow, thanks be to God. Those are very helpful thoughts, comments, Dr. Mars, on, on a difficult topic. Yeah. As, As we keep looking forward here in the the text, Solomon continues then into verse 7. He says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. What what does that mean?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit... um, It it left me, anyway, wondering, is he talking about eating? Or is he talking about the boasting of our mouths that we can Hmm. do? And he might have been saying some of both, the toil is for his mouth. We're either taking something in and we want the tastiest stuff that we can. I I, I do very... People that know me know that I do well with my appetite, with my with my um, diet. I eat a lot of salads and things like that. But I also like chocolate. Ooh, <laughs> chocolate is good. <laughs> and I eat a little too much chocolate. But uh, again, I try to balance that off with, with enough exercise and stuff in life. <clears throat> very good too. Important to take care of our bodies. Uh yeah, your, your listeners might know I'm a stair climber, so I climb stairs for exercise, and it's a crazy sport. But uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, are we taking toil in because <coughs> excuse me because we're eating or are we boasting? I think that he could be alluding to both of those things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're never satisfied, whether it's not enough chocolate or not enough power in our lives. Because we have power over somebody else by what we, by what we say and do, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, he's saying what? What about the wise man? What about the leader over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself uh, before the living? Uh, everybody has this capacity. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite, which then kind of takes us back
0: to, you know,
1: we're never satisfied. We're Right. constantly coveting what other people have and...
0: Right, yeah, the that better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Uh, the way that, that Luther talked about that in his his comments on this section, he he kind of talked about the idea of, of a mirror, that, that Solomon would have us kind of look at the mirror and see what's right in front of you, rather than trying to look through it and see what's out there somewhere that you think is, is better. Uh, he, he even uh, used the... As one of Aesop's fables. I think it's it's the dog who who sees the reflection of the bone in the river, and and he drops the bone in hopes of getting the one that's there in the river, and then he doesn't have anything. That's the way Luther kind of thought about those words. I, thought, I mean, there's something to that. The idea of contentment, as we talked about before, that that's the gift that God would would give to us in the ninth and tenth commandments. But when we covet and, and we're looking for what's always kind of out there, and then we're never, never content, and it's just vanity, as Solomon says.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So take constantly us, in, go, ahead. go ahead.
1: No, no, I'm just saying we're constantly looking for more, and what he's given us is sufficient for the day, so.
0: That's right, that's right. Now help help us into this, this last section, verses 10 to 12. I have about seven minutes here for this and any and final, final thoughts. So help us into those verses first before we begin to wrap. Things. Yeah,
1: whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Yeah, this almost a chapter, excuse me, almost a paragraph that kind of encapsulates all of what he's doing in Ecclesiastes, what he's trying to raise up, Um, just, again, making us realize it's vanity, it's utility if we're trying to do it on our own. Who knows what's good for man while he lives these few days? And and again, Solomon had come to the conclusion that even he didn't know, and he was the, the wisest of all wise men but he was living out these last few days of his life, which looking back now, he realizes was passing like a shadow. Who can tell man what will be after him out of the sun? Well, only Jesus. And that's why, again, I think that Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 are all answering these questions that that, uh, Solomon is raising. Uh, The only person who can tell man that will be after him under the sun is that who has come down from heaven himself, lived a human life, suffered under this human life and suffered for the sake of other people, not because of his own sinfulness, but then conquered even death itself after his death through his resurrection. And that singular event just changes everything in all of our lives, even those people that don't believe it. uh, It changes because it it puts them around thousands and millions of people who do believe it, who have that joy. Um, Again, still living lives that are somewhat vain and futile here at this time, but uh, uh, we know that the shadow does eventually pass. We live in the lands, as, as C.S. Lewis talked about it. And who can tell us what will be after him? The one who went through the shadowlands himself, conquered death, blew out a large rock uh, so that uh, he could step out of the tomb, and then appeared to the apostles, 500 other people, and continues to share his life through his word, with us, uh, things might seem vain, fleeting in, in this life, and they are. But when we turn to the One who has conquered death and given us eternal life, it is all wondrous. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Again, we take that for granted too. Labor in the Lord. You know, next week I'm going to spend some time with my grandkids and. It's great joy to be with my grandkids, but it also means changing dirty diapers. Well, they're kind of out, almost outgrow. The last one's about to outgrow that. But uh, uh, but yeah, it's been 10 years of changing dirty diapers. Uh, as grandfather, I didn't have to do nearly as much of that as mother and grandmother did. But, uh, uh, but my, my third grandson, uh, my second grandson, my third grandchild, uh, yeah, he decided granddad was the one that needed to change his diaper when he was littler. and and that's just one of those labors in the Lord that, yeah, we would prefer not to do. Uh, we'd prefer not to discipline children. We'd prefer not to, to go through all the struggles of, of this life, with our jobs, with our families. Uh, but our labor in the Lord, and all the various vocations that he has called us to as parents, as pastors, as laypeople, as citizens, all of these vocations have particular labors involved in them and that labor is not in vain especially when it leads to somebody who's not a christian going why are you so joyful what what's different in your life that i don't have that makes you seem more optimistic about how things are going and say well it just let me tell you about the one who makes a difference for me and that's jesus jesus christ and again, Solomon just didn't know Jesus in the same way you and I do. Solomon prefigured him, um, but didn't know him the way that we do.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, Solomon here is very much, as we've said in another context, he's talking about life under the sun, what is observable, he, yeah. and and these questions that he asks here Really do push us forward to answer them with the perspective that's not life under the sun, S U N, but life under the sun, the S O N. Life under yep. Christ. You know, he is the one who who knows what is good for man while he lives the days of this life. He is the one who can tell man what will be after this life under the sun. And I think even in in verse ten, you know, he's where, where Solomon says that that man is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. That that matter of disputing with God brings to my mind the book of Job. Job, you know, where where Job, where the Lord basically tells Job, "Who do you think you are talking to me like this?" <laughs> well, and but I think that's part of the point of Ecclesiastes too, is that, and this is kind of taking us back to where we started. Find your place in this created order as a creature of God. Let Him be God, and you receive His gifts with thanksgiving, and that's where where joy is truly found. And and again, as Christians, we know that that's fulfilled in Christ. About a minute here, Dr. Mars, with, with final comments. Help us to wrap things up on this text today.
1: Yeah, I was uh, uh, playing ping pong with uh, one of my sons-in-law once. And we were talking about all these big philosophical sort of issues. And I said, oh, I can't wait until uh, when Jesus returns and uh, then all these mysteries will be gone. And my son-in-law stopped the ping pong game, grabbed the ball and said, no, we'll still be creatures. Mm-hmm. said, Oh, you're right, even, after, again, yeah. we see through a glass darkly now. There will be a lot of mysteries that we understand after Jesus returns that we don't understand now, but, but this is how God's created us as creatures who live under him, and he gave Adam and Eve certain responsibilities. They blanched on those, uh, but he will give us responsibilities in the new heaven and new earth, and we'll, we will get to live under him in his kingdom uh, of glory for life everlasting, and it will be grand and glorious, and uh, look forward to, to getting there.
0: Amen. Jesus,
1: Amen. come quickly, Lord Jesus. So,
0: Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The Rev. Dr. Rick Mars is Senior Professor of Practical Theology and Pastoral Counseling at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He has been helping us today to study Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18, through chapter 6, verse 12. Dr. Mars, thanks for being our guest today.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Pastor Apple.
0: I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Ecclesiastes 5 or 6, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.